0: morning. We're continuing our sermon series going through the book of Galatians this morning, and we're going to be in Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. Well, something unusual happened at the end of this past Major League Baseball season, and uh, that was that fans showed up to go see the Seattle Mariners play baseball. And uh, the last weekend of the season, uh, The last few games were either sold out or nearly sold out, and if you have not been paying much attention uh, to the Mariners recently, don't blame you. Quick update, hasn't been good. It's been a little bit painful, but something happened at the end of this season where the Mariners started to win games, and the fans started holding these signs in the games that said, believe. And the Mariners started to win games, and fans started to believe they started to believe that they could win that they had a chance and they had a desire the fans did to for the team to win and to see the team win and so they showed up and what i appreciate when i think about that is that their belief in the team and the desire to see the team win Changed the behavior of the fans. Whereas attendance has been rather low for the Mariners, attendance was very high for these games. It changed the behavior of the fans. A few things we hope and pray for our church through our study of Galatians is that the Lord will grow our confidence in the gospel, grow our affection for Him and for others, and shape the way we live together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We hope that the Lord will strengthen our beliefs, and our affections, and have that shaped the way we live our lives. The problem in Galatia that Paul wrote to address was false teaching that had come to the churches that he had helped to get started after he had departed. He had gone there. He had preached the gospel. He had made disciples. He had helped to start congregations in the different cities of southern Galatia. But after he moved on to continue his ministry elsewhere, others came in and taught things that were contrary to the gospel. Sadly, there were many Christians who were being led away by this teaching. And this reality prompted Paul to write a letter to the churches in Galatia. And what we're going to see in our passage this morning is the importance of standing firm in the truth of the gospel while resisting those who would try to persuade us otherwise. God cares about what we believe. What we're also going to see is that standing firm in the gospel frees us up to love and serve others. God cares about our desires and how we live our lives. So I'm gonna read Galatians chapter five, verses one through 15, and I encourage you to follow along. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if You accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. When Paul wrote this letter to the Christians in Galatia, the Freedom of the gospel was at stake, and the freedom of the gospel, the freedom that he was speaking of, is the freedom of conscience that comes with believing in Christ. See, we are all guilty. We're all guilty sinners. We've all sinned against a holy God, the God who made us in his image to know him, to love him, to obey him, to glorify him. He made us for this good purpose, and every single one of us has rejected his good purpose. Every single one of us is guilty. Every single one of us is deserving of punishment. And when we have a right understanding of who God is, and we have a right understanding of our own sin, our consciences are guilty. And we feel the weight of that. But God has provided a way for us to be free. And he did so by providing Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. He sent Jesus Christ into the world to save sinners like you and I. And Jesus Christ came into the world living a perfectly sinless life and then dying upon the cross to take the punishment we deserve in our place so that everyone who believes in Christ will receive the forgiveness of their sins and the gift of eternal life. Everyone who believes in Christ is free from the penalty of sin. We are free from that burdensome guilt of our sin That we are all guilty of. We are free. We are free in the most important way. Because we are saved by grace through faith, we are not meant to live under the burden of the law, meaning God's law, which condemns us by revealing our sin, by revealing how we have fallen short of God's standards. We are not meant to live Under the burden of the law, we are not meant to live with the pressure of trying to justify ourselves before the Lord. We are not meant to live with the fear that if I don't do all the right things, God will reject me. Instead, as Christians, we are meant to enjoy the freedom of knowing that we are fully accepted by God our Father in Christ Jesus. If you are a Christian, then you have it. You have the acceptance of the Father. You have the love of the Father. The promises God has made to all believers apply to you, and he will deliver on all of his good promises. You don't have to prove yourself to God, and because you don't have to prove yourself to God, you don't have to prove yourself to anyone else. The gospel is good news that we are meant to fully embrace. And by fully embracing the gospel, we enjoy freedom but some of the Galatians were hedging. They were hedging. Yes, we believe in Jesus Christ, but we're also going to try to obey the law just to make sure, just to make sure that we are right with God. Paul then laid it out clearly for them. He said, you can't have it both ways. You can't hedge your bets. You have believed in Christ, but... Now you are accepting circumcision, meaning you trusted in Christ for your salvation, but are now agreeing that you must be circumcised in order to be truly saved. But if you hold that view of circumcision, he said, then Christ is of no advantage to you. Whoa. How awful would that be? How awful would it be for you if Christ... The Savior of the world who died upon the cross was of no advantage to you. We know that if one does not believe in Christ, then Christ is of no advantage to them. And he was saying, if you believe in Christ, but you're also trying to justify yourself, then Christ is also of no advantage to you. He said, well, if you believe that you must obey one command in the law to be saved, then it logically follows that you must obey every command to be saved. And if you're banking on your ability to obey the law to be right with God, then you are not putting your trust in Jesus to be made right with God. If that is the case, then you are severed from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. You are not trusting in the grace of God by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. You are trusting in yourself in some way shape or form. Friends, you are either trusting in yourself or you are trusting in Jesus. It cannot be 50-50. It cannot be 90-10. It cannot be 99% Jesus and 1% you. If you are not trusting 100% in Jesus for your salvation, then you are believing another gospel, which is no gospel at all. Christians, however, are those who, through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us, have placed our faith entirely in Jesus and His righteousness. You see, the wonderful news of the gospel is not only that Christ died for the forgiveness of our sins, which He did, that in and of of itself is wonderfully epic good news. But what we also see in the gospel is that Christ lived a perfectly sinless life. He perfectly obeyed the will of God, the only one to live a truly righteous life. And when we repent of our sin and put our faith in Jesus Christ, we receive the forgiveness of our sins as well as the gift of his righteousness, You see, it's not only that God does not count our sins against us, he also gives us credit for the righteousness of Christ. That is imputed righteousness. God judges us according to the righteousness of Christ. We see this, for example, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, where Paul wrote, For our sake he made him Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Wow, in Jesus Christ, we become the righteousness of God. And here in Galatians, Paul said, We who put our faith in Christ eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. I appreciate Frank Thielman's words here where he wrote, Paul often speaks of the justification of believers in the past tense because it is something that happens when they first believe the good news that God's gift of Christ's atoning death has rescued them from the punishment they deserve and has reconciled them to God. Perhaps he envisions justification in the future here as a reminder that although the salvation of believers from God's future wrath is certain, It will be fully realized only on the final day. It is important, therefore, to continue to trust in God's gift of Christ's redeeming work until that day. Because we have been justified by faith, we don't wait for the hope of righteousness like we wait for the hope of a Mariner's World Series title. The hope of righteousness will come to pass, but the full realization hasn't happened yet, so we must stand firm in the gospel Paul concluded this section by saying it doesn't matter if you are circumcised or not. Circumcised, uncircumcised, that's not what counts. What does matter, on the other hand, is faith working through love. And why did he say this? Because loving others is the fruit of genuine faith. In verses 7 through 12, Paul expressed his frustration with the false teachers as well as the effect of the false teachers. The false teachers had persuaded the members of the congregations and their influence spread through the churches like leaven working through a lump of bread. The Galatians had been running well because they believed the gospel, but they were getting tripped up by these bad ideas. The problem of false teachers was by no means unique to Galatia. In her book, Another Gospel, Alisa Childers writes about her research on the topic of false teachers. She said, I discovered that the topic of false teachers and false teaching is addressed directly in 22 of 27 New Testament books. Encouragement to keep the true faith and to practice discernment is mentioned in every single one. This speaks to the importance of the truth of the gospel. The gospel is true, and the gospel is precious. Therefore, we have a wonderful duty to guard the truth of the gospel, to stand firm in the truth of the gospel, to guard the truth of the gospel. We have this wonderful duty and privilege to do so. The gospel is precious, and therefore we must hold fast to it and guard it one of the crummy things about false teachers is that oftentimes they are hard to identify. Rare, very rarely do they come out and say, you should worship Satan. Right? And it's like, ah, what does the Bible say about that? Ah, that's a tough one. It's usually not that simple and straightforward. No, they are often hard to identify because they say things that sound good or sound true or appeal to our sensibilities. The false teachers in Galatia appealed to the human tendency to believe that somehow, some way, I need to justify myself, and I can. Today, there are many examples of false teachers twisting or distorting the truth of the gospel. In many different ways, in many different forms, there are examples of the gospel being distorted. And brothers and sisters, this is why it's so important for us to know God's word. We can consume teaching from many different sources and in many different formats. This can be a very good thing. This can also be a problematic thing if we're not careful. We can read books. We can read articles and blog posts. We can listen to podcasts and sermons and lectures. We can go to conferences. So many different sources of teaching. So many different voices that we can listen to. But anything we read or listen to must be held up in the light of God's word. We want to be people of the word, knowing God's word, believing God's word, trusting God's word, able to discern right teaching versus false teaching in light of God's word. That is all of our responsibility. Because of what is at stake, With the truth of the gospel, Paul did not mince words regarding the false teachers. He expressed confidence that the Galatians would return to holding a right view of the gospel and that the false teachers would receive the punishment they deserved. And just in case there was any ambiguity regarding how he felt about the false teachers who were teaching circumcision, he said, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Whoa, is that in the Bible? What did your pastor preach on the Sunday before Christmas? Actually, admittedly, this is pretty shocking at first blush. Some might accuse Paul of being a little crude. Oh, you teach circumcision, just cut it all off. It's a little bit shocking. It's a little bit startling. But again, Frank Thielman writes, Paul is writing, however, into a cultural context "...in which especially zealous male devotees of the goddess Cybele would cut off their genitals in a widely publicized annual display of devotion that the Roman emperor Claudius himself sponsored. In such a cultural context, Paul's reference to genital mutilation was not as offensive as it would be in modern cultural contexts where such rituals are widely and correctly perceived as horrific." Viewed from this angle, Paul's meaning is that false teachers' insistence on circumcision is equivalent to the senseless mutilation of pagan religious practices. Like them, it is a fruitless human effort to control divine power. He wasn't going merely for shock value. He wasn't trying to be offensive and crude. He was trying to make a point emphatically. It's pointless what you're trying to do you are just acting like these pagans who are practicing this form of mutilation, thinking that they can control God. Paul urged the Galatians to reject the bad ideas. And he said, if anyone tells you that I agree with these bad ideas, it's a bunch of baloney. Apparently, some of the false teachers were trying to claim that Paul agreed with them. And he said, if I agreed with them, if I was still preaching circumcision, meaning if I was still preaching justification by works, then I would not be persecuted because I would no longer be preaching the offensive message of the cross. Paul suffered at the hands of many different people, but one of the primary groups to oppose him and make his life difficult was the Jewish authorities. His refusal to insist on circumcision and impose the law of Moses on Gentile believers elicited their wrath. This was a dramatic reversal in the life of Paul. Before he was a Christian, he was one of these Jewish authorities who persecuted Christians for the message they preached. He viewed their message as so offensive that it warranted imprisonment or even worse. Then he became a Christian and felt the wrath that he had once delivered. He felt the wrath of the Jewish authorities who found the message of the cross to be offensive. They found the idea of a Messiah who was crucified in a shameful and humiliating way to be offensive. But they are not the only ones for whom the message of the cross is an offense. The idea that you can live a good life worthy of God's approval is a popular message. People like that. That appeals to our pride. I can do something to be worthy of God's favor, to be worthy of God's kingdom. I can live my life in such a way that is pleasing to God in my own strength. We like to hear that. But the message of the cross is an offense. Consider how the message of the cross might be an offense here in our own community. Many people in our community would probably evaluate themselves and their lives and say, I'm good. I'm fine. Doing well. Got it together. Sufficient. Got a decent job. Decent place to live. Kids are doing fine. School activities. Go on vacation, whatnot. Many people would look at their own lives and say, yeah, I'm living a good life. I'm living a decent life. I'm a decent person. But what does the cross say to them? That you're not okay. You're not a good person. That you need to humble yourself and recognize how sinful you are. For many people who view themselves in this way, the message of the cross is an offense. Why? Because the cross says, you sinned against a holy God to whom you are accountable. The cross says you are a sinner who deserves punishment. The cross says you are a sinner and you cannot save yourself. The cross says you need a savior. The cross says your only hope for a savior is one who was meek and lowly and who died in an embarrassing, humiliating, and shameful way. The cross says you need to humble yourself more than you know. The cross says that if you want to live, you must come and die. So the message of the cross, for many people, is an offense. But ultimately, the message of the cross brings freedom for those who believe. Freedom from self-reliance, freedom from a guilty conscience, Freedom from the fear of judgment. We are called to freedom. Even Christians throughout the world living under oppressive regimes get to enjoy freedom in the most important sense of the word. We have freedom in Christ. And no one can take that from us. In verse 13, Paul said, Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. We would be misunderstanding the nature and purpose of our freedom if we used our freedom to indulge the sinful desires of our flesh. We never want to adopt the mindset that it doesn't matter what I do or how I live because I am justified by faith and God will forgive all my sins anyway. Friend, if that happens to be you, if you think lightly of your sin or how you are living your life because you know that God will forgive you anyways, that I want to challenge you this morning. If that is your mindset, then you are failing to understand the gospel. You're failing to understand the love of Christ. You're failing to understand what he did for you to take the punishment for that sin. If you take your sin lightly, if you take the way you live lightly because you know that God's going to forgive you anyways. And I would encourage you to press into the gospel to truly know Jesus, to better understand what he has done for you. When you understand that, it changes your view of your sin. It causes you to hate your sin. You hate the things that you do that caused Christ to suffer Because he loves you and you love him. Don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. Do you see how the gospel sets us free from the need to justify ourselves so that we can focus on and serve others? We don't serve others to earn God's favor. We don't serve others to prove that God was right to save us. We don't serve others to get God's love. We already have all of that. We have his acceptance. We have his favor. We have his love. We have everything we need to serve others selflessly for their good and for God's glory. We are to serve one another in love. And we serve one another in love, and that love comes from God. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand and stand firm in the freedom we have in the gospel. One of the ways we do this is by growing in our understanding of God's love for us. In Romans 5, 5, Paul wrote, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. We might not always feel it, but God's love has been poured into our hearts. And God's love given to us in Jesus Christ is the most precious gift we have. It's the best thing we have. God's love is amazing. And it gets better. In Romans 8, 38-39, Paul writes, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The best thing we have is the love of God in Jesus Christ, which has been poured into our hearts. And the best thing that we have, the love of God, cannot be taken from us, and we cannot lose it. We can lose things. We can lose things in this life, in this world, in its present form. We can feel the pain of that, the sting of that. But we cannot lose the best thing that we've been given. And that's the love of God in Christ Jesus poured into our hearts. It is good to reflect It is good to reflect on and praise God for his love for you. Because you are free in Christ, because God has accepted you in Christ, because you have the unconditional love of the Father, which has been poured into your heart and which you cannot lose and no one can take from you, you are free to serve others. The freedom of the gospel enables us to truly love and serve one another. And the one another here in verse 13 refers to the church family. He was speaking to Christians in the context of their congregations. You are free to serve one another. How are you serving your church family? If you're not a member, I want to encourage you to pursue membership. Love flourishes in the context of a committed relationship. This is why marriage is a good thing. That's why it's good for a man and woman to get married rather than just to to live together. They get married. They make a commitment to each other. Love flourishes in the context of a commitment. If you're not a member, I want to encourage you to make a commitment to help your love for the congregation grow and flourish. This is a good thing. If you're not a member, I encourage you to take the membership class beginning in January. If you are a member, you begin to serve one another by showing up. Pastor Mark Dever has said, our primary ministry to each other is attendance. We show up. We're there. We're present with each other. And then we consider how the Lord might be leading you to serve others. What gifts has he given you? What resources has he given you? What relationships and opportunities has he given you? There are opportunities to serve people in practical ways, both when we gather on the Lord's Day and throughout the week. I'm so thankful for the many ways people serve here on Sunday mornings. There are so many examples I could point to. One that comes to my mind is that of Zach and Carmen Hoxow. I love seeing Zach Hoxow almost every Sunday morning before the 9 o'clock service because he comes to teach the kids the kindergarten through second graders, every week. And Carmen serves so faithfully as well, serving uh, with music, both here in in this gathering as well as with the kids as well. Week in, week out, and I told Zach, I'm so thankful for the way that you serve week in and week out teaching these kids, and his response is always gratitude and joy for the opportunity to serve in this way. I'm always challenged by that and encouraged by that. Just that desire to serve and that joy in serving the kids of our church, the children of this church family. So many people serve when we gather. What a joy it is to see people serving, whether it's greeting or in kids ministry, in security, sound and music, hospitality, coffee, all of it. So many people serve in so many different ways so we can joyfully gather as the Lord's people. But we also serve one another throughout the week. And I can literally think of hundreds of examples of a way this church family serves one another. I love seeing members bring each, other, bring each other meals. Or just helping out and going and spending time with someone when someone is hurting. There's so much generosity and hospitality taking place throughout the life of this church. And that is a good thing. That is a commendable thing. And I want to encourage us to keep going in this. Keep going and serving one another. God has given you gifts and opportunities and resources and relationships so that you can serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. We see the opposite of serving one another in verse 15 where Paul said, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Isn't that a terrible image that these words provide? He's like talking about people behaving like animals, biting and devouring one another. The opposite of serving one another humbly in love is to bite and devour one another. Obviously, by God's grace, we want to be characterized as those who love and serve one another, not mistreat one another. Paul went on to say, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He was quoting from the law In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, right there in the law that God gave to his people was the command to love your neighbor as yourself. This reminds us of when Jesus was asked, what is the great commandment in the law And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. What a profound statement. The purpose of God's law was to reveal his will so that his people would understand what it meant to love God and love their neighbors. The law revealed how we can love God and love neighbors. And therefore, if someone's heart was to love God, if someone had love for God in their heart and truly loved their neighbor, then it would naturally follow, they would obey God's law and his commands. But if a person was seeking to use the law to justify him or herself, they were missing it. They were missing the point. If your desire is to love God and love your neighbor, then your heart is in the right place. That is evidence that you are believing and standing firm in the gospel. Serving one another and loving your neighbor is how we are to use our freedom. We have talked about serving one another, but how can we love our neighbors? Well, first of all, we need to understand what Jesus means by our neighbors. And what we have seen in the teaching of Jesus is that our neighbor is not just the people who live next to us on our street, but it's anyone in our life. Anyone whom God has sovereignly placed in our life, whom we can love and serve, whom we can care for. God has sovereignly placed people in your life whom he has called you to love. Maybe it's the people on your street. Maybe you can love the neighbors on your street by helping with a project or by delivering cookies. Who doesn't feel loved when they receive cookies? Even that simple act can open a door. Maybe you can love your neighbors at your place of work by checking in on them, seeing how they are doing, helping them with the task assigned to them, or simply by buying them a cup of coffee. Sometimes it's such simple Acts, those simple, thoughtful acts which can demonstrate tangibly the love of God. If you're a parent, you can love your children by joyfully teaching them the gospel and modeling them for them the love of Christ. If you're a middle school student or a high school student, you can love your fellow students by befriending them or offering a kind word, especially if you see one of them going through a hard time. To you students... Don't miss the opportunities that God is giving you right now in your life. There are many students who are hurting all around you. And perhaps the Lord wants to use you to show his love by offering a kind word, by checking in on somebody. You have no idea the kind of impact that might have. Everyone loves the idea of loving your neighbor in theory. But I want to challenge us to walk away from here thinking about how we can actively and practically love the people whom God has sovereignly placed in our lives. We are called to stand firm in the gospel, to hold fast to the truth of the gospel, to resist false teaching, to cling to Jesus Christ rather than be severed. From Jesus Christ, to walk in his grace rather than to fall from grace. We're to walk in the gospel, to stand firm in the gospel, to enjoy the freedom that we have in the gospel. And as we enjoy this freedom, we are called to grow in our love for God and our love for neighbor and use the freedom we have to do good to others beginning with our brothers and sisters in Christ within the church family, but also to loving, to loving our neighbors, anyone whom God has sovereignly placed in our lives. God cares about what we believe. He wants us to stand firm in the gospel, to resist that false teaching. And he cares about our desires. He desires for us to desire him and to love him and to love our neighbors. And he cares about how we to, are to live that out. He wants us to serve one another day in and day out, to love our neighbors, thus demonstrating his love. So brothers and sisters, let us stand firm in the truth of the gospel and let us use our freedom to serve one another and love our neighbors. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that you've revealed to us in your word. We thank you that we can know and believe the gospel. We thank you that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And we pray that we will walk in the freedom that you have given us in Jesus. And we pray that as we do so, we will grow in our love for you as we grow in our understanding of your love for us. And we pray that we will use our freedom not to indulge our sinful desires, but to serve and build one another up, to love our neighbors, to bring glory to your name. we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.